was to make it simple. So if you read my next book, I bet I don't use DevOps as a word more than 10 times. And that's very intentional. I, I tried to avoid all buzzwords. I tried to make it very simple, straightforward, and common sense. listening to the Achieving DevOps podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. It's my pleasure to introduce to you a a very good friend of mine and and just a a leading figure in the industry, uh, Gary Groover. So uh, you may have read one one of his uh, several books, like Leading the Transformation. There's Starting and Scaling DevOps in the Enterprise. And um, and his latest one is called, um, Gary, you want to kind of... Yeah, Engineering the Digital Transformation. And then you you missed the starter one, which was a practical approach to large scale, which was really had all the details of the history of the transformation that we were, that I was fortunate enough to be part of at HP. Right. And so at HP, can you kind of, this, this story about at HP gets mentioned quite often because um, a lot of times we hear, well, DevOps, and you know, this is just for your large Amazon type companies. It's for software companies, unicorns. It's not for you know, it's not for banks, it's not for government, it's not for all these different sectors. HP seems to fall into that latter category. A lot of hardware, a lot of testing. What what makes the HP experience an interesting story? I just think that we were able to document easily the breakthroughs in productivity that we had. And we documented the story of a three-year journey. So it was probably more of a real-life Phoenix project where here was a group of people and here's what we did and here's what we made happen. And it was because it was on products and we were able to measure the number of products and we were able to measure the amount of our resources that were going towards porting the code and testing it versus creating new features. And we were able to document how many products we were supporting. It was really easy to measure the productivity. And one of my co-authors would say we got a 10x improvement in productivity based on number of bills, number of tests and all that. But from a business perspective, I think I can easily stand by a two to three X improvement in productivity. That's very measurable and easy to quantify. And and that's harder to do if you're doing a website or some other application. So I think that's a lot of what got the attention. And then just the idea that you could do this on something besides a, you know, a small set of Java code doing a website type application. I think that's where it kind of got people's attention. And Jez Humble always teased me about what made you think you could do this with firmware? And my my answer was, I didn't know it was supposed to be hard. And it's all I had. You know, we had a big problem. We couldn't get anything done. We couldn't get it out. 2008 came along. We had to cut our workforce in half. and, And we had to get this new architecture done. So we were just constantly trying to figure out how to make the more organization more productive and more effective. And we really didn't go off to do DevOps because it wasn't a term. And we really didn't go off to do Agile because, you know, nobody had really done it with 800 developers around the world working on a large system that had to be coupled together. And we were just trying to help remove the roadblocks that were keeping us from being effective. And that 
the types of things that we did and the types of things that drove the biggest productivity and the effectiveness of the organization later got termed as DevOps. And I like there that, that you didn't set out to do DevOps um, at all, but but you had a specific goal in mind uh, business-wise. So kind of introduce introduce yourself to us. Talk, talk to me about you know where you're from, your history, anything and everything that kind of talks about your journey to this point. Work at HP for the first life in a lot of different roles. And I was always one looking to continuous improvement. You know, I started on the manufacturing floor, really going around. Then we had a team-based system there and we're driving continuous improvement and trying to make it competitive when a lot of you know, printed circuit assembly manufacturing was moving offshore and I was very motivated to help people maintain their jobs and be productive. And I was leading TPM total product productivity management classes with the operators on the floor at night at different times and really driving continuous improvement there. And I guess it's a, it's a fault of mine that ever since I've always looked for how things can be done better. And I just kind of figure that's our role as leaders and managers in the organization is continue that focus on helping the organization consistently get more better, more productive and working down that path. I, I worked in, you know, in the manufacturing facility and then I did product development for quite a while, managing mechanical engineers, electrical engineers and firmware engineers at different times. And I sat on the outside of this firmware organization for quite a while and couldn't, couldn't get enough done from the firmware organization. And then in 2007, I got an opportunity to take over leading this organization of 800 people around the world that were developing embedded firmware and embedded software for the laser dip printer line and figured there had to be a better way. And we're right in the middle of re-architecting it. And every day I was just coming in and trying to figure out how to get the organization better, how to get more productive, how to get more effective. And we went down this journey of continuous improvement. And three years later, we look back and we're just amazed at what we'd accomplished. It was just, you know, we were bringing in 70,000 75,000 lines of code turmoil a day and keeping 10,000 hours of automated testing passing at 90%. And if you would have told us three years ago that that was possible, we would have told you it wasn't, but it was working. And it was, you know, we went from being the bottleneck for the organization to not, and we freed up an 8x improvement in the capacity we had for innovation, which was just a huge breakthrough. And it was such a big breakthrough. And people were kind of doing agile at a small scale, but not as much at the large scale and we you know i kept teasing my program manager we ought to write a book and then we got delayed on a trip to india and i finally sat down in the denver airport and we started cranking it out and by the time we got back we we're two-thirds of the way done towards my first book and or our first book and got it out there and kind of documented the message so that was my journey there i got a chance to move from there to macy's as a vp of operations QA and release for the website and it was an opportunity to take a lot of the things that they'd done at HP but do it on a website and it was right about the time that Jez Hummel written the continuous delivery book and he read our first book and I read his book and we kind of went back and forth and he was down the street from where I was working and I really couldn't afford to hire him but I could afford to buy him beer so we go out for beers at night debate how this was really supposed to work and I, you know, he'd done it with a team of 40 people and then went on the speaking tour and I was trying to do it with thousands of people and 
you know, we'd go back and forth. The debate is how it was supposed to work and how it was going to go. And it was it was a great learning experience for me. And you know, ever since the experience at HP, I've been trying to help other people realize those type of benefits. So first at Macy's, leading that transformation there and driving that change. And now in my consulting business, I'm trying to do as much as I can to help people realize the benefits that I know are possible and help them get there as quickly and efficiently as we can. It's 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 fun. It's every new client I go into is a new and a different problem, and it's fun to go in and analyze it. And it's fun to work with the people to frame up the problem and figure out how they're going to get you know justify the investment and then show the improvements. And that that's where I spend my time. I, I, I think I'm a little unique in the industry that when I consult with a company, I don't just come in and do a presentation and leave. And I'm not trying to sell hands on keyboard and do it for customers, but I'm really going in there and coach, helping them develop in their plan and then coaching them on their journey. And it's really important that it's their plan and their journey that I help them create. And then I try to help them avoid mistakes along the way and, and doing that. You know, when they're ready to learn something, I can give them the advice. And the other side is it, it gives me a real-time feel for what's working and what's not working in the industry. I find that interesting because a lot of consultants, um, thinking especially of our Agile friends, um, they're like seagulls. They fly in, crap out everything, fly out after a two-hour presentation where they solve the problems of the universe. But your engagement style, I'm going to be engaging with these teams for the next two months, more or less continuously, and kind of help them through the rough parts. Is it kind of like a plane taking off where a lot of times you'll see, this is like most of the struggle, the work is that first couple months? I tend to try to get them on this continuous improvement journey and get them used to kind of having the iterations and then looking back on it. And I tend to stay engaged for at least six months. There's some clients I, I still talk to on a regular basis, you know, three years later. If you look at my latest book, there's a really good case study by Ted Yule at Optum. And we tend to talk on a regular basis. And, you know, it's it's I'm I'm constantly learning from what they're doing and, and what's working and what's not working for them so that I can help other people avoid the mistakes that Ted's made and um, learn from the things that have worked well for them. So what are some common mistakes that you see out there? I think that people either go off to do DevOps or do Agile and don't think about what they're trying to accomplish as a business. And when they're trying to figure out how to accomplish that as a business, then you can start to look in your toolbox and think about what problem that you're trying to solve is one of the big ones. The other thing is people try to set up a continuous integration environment somewhere on their deployment pipeline, get some automated tests and start to try to get people to respond to that feedback. And what what they'll find is they don't have a stable quality signal. So what do you mean then when you when you talk about a stable quality signal? I, I, I don't quite understand that phrase. Well, there's a set of experiments that I have in my latest book that I think everybody should run. And this is take a take a point on your deployment pipeline somewhere as far to the right as you have influence over the organization. If you go too far right and you don't have influence, you can't drive the changes. And if you go too far left, you're just you know one development team or a few developers, and you're not the changes that you will make won't have a big of an impact. So take an environment somewhere where you have control, 
and take your automated tests, so when you have a group of them or set of them, run them 20 times in a row and put the results in the database. Do you get the same answer every time? And if you're like most organizations I work with, what you'll see is, is there's a bunch of tests that are always passing. There's a bunch of tests that are always failing because there's a defect that you let get into the system. But more, than, more often than not, there's a set of tests that toggle between passing and failing. If you ask your developers to be responding to that, you're going to get frustrated. They're going to give up. They can't get their code in, and it's not going to be a very good transfer. The next step is take those tests that are always passing, and now take those again and run them in random order 20 times in a row. And we want to be able to run our tests in random order because we want to be able to run them in parallel so we can run them quick enough against the environment to get rapid feedback and see what kind of an answer you get. Very frequently what I find is that again creates a, an additional set of flaky tests. We can't use those in our system as a quality signal until we get them fixed. Set those aside with your other flaky tests to get reworked later. And, and I'll have I'll have people come and argue with me. It's like, no, no, we need those tests. They provide coverage. And my point is, I think you should get rid of them and set them aside until you rework them. Because while they're providing coverage, they're also doing one of two bad things. They're either causing your development team to constantly be debugging and triaging stuff that's outside of their control, or you're teaching them to ignore tests. Either one is bad. You don't want to do that. Once we have a set of tests we can run in random order and we've got a good stable set of tests that we can use for a quality signal, what I want to do is I want to point them against that test environment and I want to run them in parallel and I want to load up that test environment. And very frequently what I see when we do this is that there's something flaky in the system. Maybe the test environment worked really well for manual testing, but when I put a load on it, it doesn't have enough memory or it doesn't have enough CPU power or maybe there's a flaky F5 in the system. All those types of things can and will go wrong. We can't, we can't really be expecting our developers to respond to that. So we need to go in and we need to get those issues to root cause. We need to get all the flakiness out of the system so that when we're giving the feedback to the developers, what they are seeing is a development problem. Next, we're going to run that same experiment and we're going to make sure that we have a stable deployment process. And we're going to do that over and over again. And so we're going to take the same version of code in the same environment. We're going to deploy the code. We're going to run our automated tests. We're going to deploy the code. We're going to run our automated tests. If we have any issues with consistency in the deployment process, maybe you have property files you're not managing well, whatever it is, you need to get that resolved so that you have a stable quality signal. And then we need to do that same step with create an environment, deploy the code, run all the automated tests. And we need to get those things to root cause. And for a lot of organizations, that can be a pretty long journey to get to that stable quality signal. But once you have that and you're able to run your automated test quickly on a regular basis, you, you've got the breakthrough aha moments that come as far as really having a really good automated deployment pipeline up and running and is a breakthrough that it can provide for the business. This is really interesting because Microsoft went through that where we had these batteries of manual tests that would take hours and hours and we couldn't trust that red meant red. So when we're talking about a stable quality signal, we want to get to a place where we trust a deployment and if there's a red flag, we know this is something, first off, the team can control and can fix and should fix. Yeah, it's I, I see too many organizations go start to keep those 
builds green when it's outside of the developer's control. You haven't gotten to root cause of the problems. And this is probably the biggest mistake I see with large organizations. And it was one of the first things that drove me to writing this new book, Engineering the Digital Transformation, is we need to apply engineering rigor and much more structure before we start building in quality. And we need a systematic stepwise process like that to enable you to you know, get to something stable that you can use. And if you try to turn this on too soon, before you have that stable signal, you're, you're gonna auger in and you're gonna have, you know, the developers yelling at the business that they can't get anything done and the managers yelling at them and these DevOps people are messing us all up. We can't get anything done. And it's, and, and in a lot of cases they're right, right? We need to get all the rest of the stuff out of the system. And, you know, that can take you down the path of fixing your test automation. That can take you down the path of automating your deployments. That can take you down the path of scripting your environments. If those are sources of instability, and what I find when I run those experiments is almost every large organization I work with has a different issue. It could be, you know, I've gone into large organizations that have thousands of automated tests. I said, great, let's, let's run these every day. And they go, well, no, we can't do that. It takes us two weeks to get the data set up to run the test. I was like, well, well that's not very automated. That's slowing you down. That's um, the pain point, right? And that's the pain point. And, you know, these, I, I tend to talk about the reason I like DevOps of trying to increase the frequency is right now your organization is brute forcing its way through these issues and they can be successful. But as you crank up that <coughs> frequency, they can no longer brute force their way through and you've got to use automation to fix it once and for all. And when you do these types of things, and you know, one of your comments earlier was, you know, what's different with a large tightly coupled systems? Well, sometimes you need to know that your code is good as an independent system before you run it against the back end systems that are unstable or you don't have control over. In a lot of cases, you need to put service virtualization or something in there to mock that out so you can get a stable quality signal. And then the case study in the book where Yule Ted goes through that, he that was the first thing he did was when he started run, trying to run the test more frequently, they were just completely unstable because of the backend systems. And there was no way he was ever going to get a stable signal until he started mocking out those backend systems and he had some control over his destiny. Each organization, when you go down and run that experiment, is going to come up with different issues. And you need to let those issues drive your priorities of what you're gonna go improve because you need to be showing benefits for the business as quick as you can. And if you just go down some standard maturity model or you go to try to map, you know, replicate a process that some other company was successful with, you may not be solving your problem. You know, how many how many benchmarking efforts would tell you that you know, you've got a flaky F5 in your test environment until you fix that, you can't do anything. That's not the type of thing that's gonna show up when we, benchmark successful companies. It's the type of thing where you need to run your engineering experiments, apply the engineering rigor to get to root cause and then fix it once and for all. So this is this is kind of a, a consistent theme. Both my book and yours talks about what is the actual business goals you, you want to you want to accomplish. And it's funny, both your book and mine um, like early on I have the managers say, we're not even going to use the word DevOps. It's a buzz where I don't even want to hear it. It has to do with it, you know, if it's, if it's not connected to business, I don't want to hear about it. And you kind of went down down the same road a little bit. It seems like. I, 
I didn't do DevOps at HVOPS. I, I was trying to fix a business problem. I was trying to make the firmware to where it wasn't the bottleneck for the organization. I want to free up capacity for innovation. It's only then that I started looking at different tools and processes. And to be honest, I could really care less if you're good at DevOps. What I'd like to see you do is get on a journey to continuous improvement and be able to demonstrate and prove that you're identifying and taking waste out of your development and delivery process. And you mentioned that at HP, for example, um, maybe a 10 time, 10x increase in productivity based on number of builds, maybe two to three. Um, so that you had some specific KPIs. Did you did you start with like the standard number of builds a day, number of red builds? Um, you know, what was your did your did your KPIs change over time? Yeah, it did as we were learning and doing different things. You know, we started by just we were rewriting the architecture. Let's try to get a prototype up and going. Let's try to you know run run. I think the simplest thing we could do was run a scan. And then we figured out how to run a print and then we hooked them together and tried to run a copy. But there was a very basic thin slice for the architecture that we were looking at. And then we realized test automation was important. So when we had iterations and goals, we'd have people come in and, you know, first every iteration, we'd want to demo the things that we'd accomplished. And then after a while, Tommy Malzer started asking the questions like, okay, great. Nice that you have that. Can you demo that with your automated tests? And can you make sure that that new feature is on track? And so people started realizing that you couldn't do these things unless it was on track and you demonstrate it with an automated test. And then, you know, that was when we were first starting. And, you know, at the end, we had you know, 10,000 hours of automated tests running on Arrakis servers every day. And we had, you know, 400, 800 developers around the world checking in 75,000 lines of code to all a day. We needed a different way of looking at that big process. So. So those things changed over time and it was really along our journey piece. And one of the things that I really discussed and have been doing for a long time is as, as leaders, we need to spend time out in our organizations getting a qualitative feel for what's working and what's not working. And I, I had a set of metrics. I could do drill downs every morning and I'd get in at seven and by eight o'clock, I knew everything that was going on in the organization from the data, and I could spend the rest of my time going and figuring it out. And, and as I started consulting, I came to the conclusion that that's what I really needed to inspire leaders and other organizations to do. And after trying that for several years, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, that may not be realistic to get all the managers out doing that and, and other organizations. and. You know, my belief was you needed that qualitative feel because it was really hard to measure software. But what I've come to the conclusion of is I've seen the power in large organizations of what being able to have really good metrics to drive things can do and the change that you can make happen with it. I've shifted my thinking a little bit to really come around to the point of we need really good metrics for analyzing and figuring out what's going on. And that's a big part of what I've tried to put together in, you know, my new book. And and my my new book is really I've come to the conclusion that, you know, just going off and doing DevOps or just going off and doing agile, even if we start with business objectives, really isn't driving our success as well as we could. It's just not a matter of replicating processes or approaches you've seen somewhere else. And it's got to be more than just benchmarking. 
if you look at what happened in the automobile industry in the 70s and the 80s, Toyota had gotten so good and so effective at delivering software. You know, they were the Googles and Amazons of the world at their time. And all the U.S. automobile manufacturers were trying to figure out how do we keep up? How do we do that? And they started off by going in and trying to copy the processes that they were using. They got better at doing benchmarking where they'd go visit a bunch of different companies and try to understand that process. And it wasn't until much later that they realized that the competitive advantage at Toyota was not their processes for what they're doing today. It was their culture of continuous improvement and it was their structured approach to continuous improvement that could engage the entire organization and everybody could be part of it and everybody could help define the change and it wasn't just a haphazard let's try this or that but it was a very structured approach to defining the problem figuring out what they're going to try to solve and i've come to the conclusion that that's what's missing in software development now you know the the agile some people have been really successful with agile so everybody went off to try to copy that People have been successful with DevOps and they've been really been able to do that well, but they there hasn't been that focus on a structured approach to continuous improvement that engaged the entire organization. And that's what motivated me to write my latest book, Engineering the Digital Transformation, is that I truly believe that a software is gonna improve at the rate that it needs to be to meet the needs of the business we're gonna need that structured approach that can engage everybody in the organization. And we can't just copy what was done in manufacturing because software is a very different beast. We need to fine tune our approaches to address the unique characteristics and capabilities of software and provide that structured approach. And that was the huge, huge motivator for the new book. And I'm a huge fan of, of the book, Starting and Scaling DevOps in the Enterprise. Um, this was probably one of the top five books that had an influence on me. I, I just loved how pragmatic it was. And you said, and it's the same, it's a similar message in that you said, listen, start with the problem you want to solve. And you broke it down into one of five different areas, development, test environments, testing and fixing defects, production deployment, monitoring and ops. So one of those five areas, you have a specific set of questions that could kind of uh, drill into where exactly is, is the, the limiting factor, right, in, in our deployment process. So for example, for development, you know, what percentage of time are we spending in planning? How big is our backlog? How many man hours of development there? I love that. And you're saying that you've refined that even more with your latest book. Yeah, I, I have. I, you know, the, the books are kind of a history of my thinking and latest thinking on different things. The practical approach which is a case study at HP the leading the transformation was everything I wish I knew before I started doing this because what I realized is while it's easy for engineers to go to conferences and learn stuff there's not much out there for executives trying to lead these and then starting and scaling is I started consulting and going into companies to analyze to figure out how to get them started on their continuous improvement journey I, I realized I needed a a more systematic approach for going in and analyzing these companies and doing that. And that was starting and scaling DevOps and enterprise. And it really started at, at the metrics and different things I was trying to capture. What, I, what I've done in the latest book is much more structured, I think, 
I really start with here's what's done in manufacturing and why, and then here's how software is different. Here's what we can learn from manufacturing because they've been doing this a long time and fine tune things over time, but here's how we need to change it to work for software. And part of that is the metrics that you talk about here. And, you know, I, I, I spent more time on the testing, defect fixing, production deployment, that end of things in a test environment in engineering the digital transformation and, and less time up front in the sort of planning process and requirements. Although, you know, those metrics there that you talk about are, are still important. And the motivation for really doing engineering the digital transformation is I've come to the conclusion that we need a more systematic approach to driving transformations. Starting and scaling DevOps was how I'd go into enterprise and analyze what was working, what wasn't working, and how to prioritize some things. But it probably wasn't as good at being able to quantify the impact of a change and being able to go back to people and show the improvement. And what I started realizing is there, there are just so many companies trying to do DevOps or do Agile that they didn't take a time to anal step back and analyze the problem. The, the first step in my mind is when you go into a manufacturing facility, it's very visible. You can see what's going on. And when you go into software, it's it's not. You can't see it. And if we're going to do continuous improvement, we're going to engage the broader organization. The first step we need to do is make sure our process, our architecture, how it's built, how it goes through the deployment pipeline is very visible to the organization. And that's going to be very different for a loosely coupled architecture where a small group of people can own their deployment into production and do A-B testing and canary releases, then it is going to be for a large, tightly coupled system, like a website or something where you've got hundreds of people working together that have to coordinate their work. And it's going to be very different if you're developing package software that gets sold to somebody else and they install it on their site and they customize it and you have no control over your release. And it's going to be very different for embedded products. The first step in my mind is making visible your architecture, making visible your deployment pipeline. And I try to get a very simple view of that. And as I do workshops with different organizations, I'll spend the first morning kind of laying out this thought, and then I'll spend a couple hours making sure we have very clear pictures with each team of exactly what their deployment pipeline is gonna look like. And then we go in and start analyzing it. But what I find is a lot of people, when they go off to do value stream mapping or something, come up with something so complex, so detailed that it's it's hard to put the metrics on it. And then it's hard to share it with anybody that wasn't part of creating it. One of the things I really start with is let's get a very simple view. The next step is for almost any of these organizations, if we're gonna transform how we deliver we need to shift from the traditional approach in software where we batch up large amounts of inventory to inspect in quality later to building in quality on an ongoing basis. And that that enables us to change how the process works. And then we can focus on flow and, and understanding how productive our organization is and how value flows through the organization from a developer you know, writing code to checking in code to going in production. And the challenge that we've historically had with software is it's very hard to measure flow. When you look at manufacturing, you can count the number of items coming down the line. You can make a change and see if you get more items per minute, per hour, per day, or whatever it is. 
with software because every every piece of feature is a different size, it's a different shape. It's hard to measure flow. You know, and you, you could do lines of code turmoil, but that's a that's a really bad metric because you don't want people copying and pasting. You could do story points, but you know, tell me how productive you need to be and I'll break the story and however many stories I need to get the points required. And I've come to the conclusion that instead of having executives go out and try to figure out qualitative what the fields are, I, I haven't been able to measure productivity very well, but I've gotten really good at measuring waste that's slowing down productivity in the organization. So anytime you've got a delay between when a developer's writing code and when they get feedback of a defect that's late, um, that's waste. Because you really want to give them that real-time defect. You actually don't even want them to enter a defect. You just want them to respond to an automated test and learn and fix it and evolve the, the code until the test is passing. And if you're giving that feedback to them weeks or months later, you can't expect them to improve and you can't expect your organization to get more effective and you can't release very often because of that delay in feedback, you've got to go through a period of when you're inspecting and quality. So one of the biggest first changes for almost any of these different types of applications is we need to move to building in quality, which requires a stable quality signal. And then we can ask people to respond to it. And then once we have that, we can look at flow. And while I can't measure productivity and flow very well, I can measure the waste that's slowing down flow and having that. And there'll, there'll be a webinar where we'll do a deep dive on this on devops.com soon, depending on when you publish this podcast, that it'd probably be worth people checking out. But then we'll do a deep dive into flow and really understanding all the different types of things that are slowing that down. And we measure that and quantify that. And then as we make changes, we can go back to the executives who gave us the bandwidth to invest in that change and show, look, here's the waste that we've moved from our process so that we have better flow and we're more productive as an organization. And then we have a very structured approach to continuous improvement. And once you've got your deployment pipeline up and running very efficiently, then it enables you to look at changing how you do the planning process. And then the last chapter is really this role of what's the what's the role of the executives, what's the role of the leaders over the deployment pipeline, and how do we engage everybody in this continuous improvement journey? That's a pretty epic scale. So just just out of curiosity, then you talk about um, starting with what does success look like? You know, like we have to make visible our architecture, our deployment pipeline. That's the very first step, and people tend to make that a little overly complex. Are we just talking here about like a value stream map with like, you know, percent complete and accurate and, you know, number of hours spent? Is that what you're looking at or is it primarily waste in like handoffs? It's it's simpler than that. It's really, you know, I start the, the easiest way to get it is, okay, at some point you're in production, right? And that's, or if you don't own your deployment, you, you've shipped your code so somebody else can install it. Before that, you've got an environment. What's your environment before that? Do you have a do you have a staging environment? Do you have a UAT environment? And what's before that? And you, if you can get people to describe the environments that the code flows through all the way back up to developers, then you've got a visual of how code flows through the organization. And it, it's, it's a very, very simple, easy to see view that doesn't have the complexity that I see a lot of people to get put together in a value stream map. And, and it, and, you know, 
it is a value stream map, but it's a very specific one that I've focused on because I found that it highlights the issues that we can fix with some of the ways that we're modernizing software development. And then once I understand that, you know, I, I, I look for a stable quality signal. And then the type of waste is anytime you've got a debug and triage something that's a data issue. That, that's a repetitive task that we can fix once and for all. Anytime I've got a debug and triage an environment issue, we need to fix that. Anytime I'm debugging and triaging a deployment issue, anytime I'm debugging and triaging the configuration issues, those are the types of things that I can go fix through automation and put in place. And once I put that automation in place, I can, I can quantify and measure the fact that that waste or friction that was slowing down flow from the organization has been eliminated. So I can use that process and those type of metrics to quantify the things that are slowing down flow. And then I can go off and implement a change and quantify the improvement that it had. Because you know the biggest challenge with software is in manufacturing, you have one group of people designing the product and you have another group of people manufacturing the product. And the people that are manufacturing it are just totally focused on building in quality and optimizing flow. And the people designing the product are trying to design the easiest to manufacture and highest quality product that meets the needs of the business that it can. In software, we've got to do both at the same time because that manufacturing process of creating an environment, deploying the code, um, building the code, deploying it, testing it, that defines the productivity of what we're doing development. It's really important to be focusing on continuously improving that. And it's got to be the same team that's responding to the business request. If we're going to get organizations to commit X percent of our capacity to allowing us to do the continuous improvement of the process, we've got to be able to show how it's going to benefit the business and why it's important to do. And that I have found works best if you can show those people the waste. And then when they've allowed you to invest in the continuous improvement, you can go back and show them we made these changes and this waste has been eliminated by this amount. You need to do that if you're going to get continue to get people to let you invest in sharpening this on an ongoing basis. Otherwise, if we don't celebrate wins and at least define what a win means, we will run out of steam in three months or just plain lose credibility. Yes. Or they'll just, yeah, we did the agile thing. So what, right? Or we right. did the ops thing. So what? I, I, we tried agile. It didn't work. Right. So uh, you talked a little bit earlier about how um, DevOps, like in your, your book, you only used the word DevOps 10 times. I haven't actually counted and gone through, but I, I really, <laughs> I really tried to avoid it because I kind of got inspired with this book by Goldrat and beyond the goal. And he, really kind of gets this point across. If you can't explain the concept you're trying to provide very simple in an understandable way, then you probably don't understand it well enough to be offering a point of view. And what I found is DevOps means so many different things to so many people and it hasn't been defined that well. And I think, you know, a lot of the definition of what is done is how it works for loosely coupled architectures where small teams can work independently. And that just doesn't represent most of what I see out in the industry. And you know, that it'd be nice if we could just all re-architect to be loosely coupled, but that's one of the most painful, hard things I've ever done in my life. And I think there's a lot of things we can do to improve processes without just rewriting everything from the ground up. And 
So I, I, I tend to I tend to avoid that if, if possible. Pivoting like that is simply uh, impractical. You're talking about the jugular um, uh, for many companies of these very large, well-established enterprises. It's it's impossible to just wave a magic wand and suddenly we're loosely coupled. It just doesn't work like that. And, there's and what's the problem we're trying to solve there anyway? I mean, does that really fix everything? You know, I, if, if you've got a large, tightly coupled system with, you know, 300 people working on it together, I think if you get a very structured well-formed deployment pipeline with some good test automation, then you get the productivity breakthroughs that allows you to do some architectural change. And then the question comes down to, do you want to spin off a thousand different microservices or do you want to break your architecture into three smaller pieces where teams can independently develop, qualify, and deploy by having a clean interface between them and automated tests and versioning services and some of those ideas that you know David Farley and Jez Hummel brought out in the continuous delivery book. I, I think there's things that we can do with these large complex systems to to improve them significantly without doing a complete rewrite. Now they'll never be as productive as those small teams, but the return on your investment for making the changes are probably there, there's some really good low-hanging fruit that I find in most organizations that I go into that you can start implementing without having to do a complete rewrite. Our goal isn't necessarily perfection. It's it I, idealism can really get us into trouble by saying we're going to do exactly the way follow the recipe that you know Microsoft did. Or, or Google, and, and it's going to end up in successful. It's it's instead making things, it's not perfection is the goal, it's making things better around that limiting factor, identifying it, and then kind of iteratively creating improvements around that or experimenting. And that's a lot of what Goldratt's books were about was just a scientific method and starting experiments one little change at a time and seeing if we can move the needle. Yeah, and, and I, I tried to do that. What, it, what I'm trying to provide is a structured approach for continuous improvement. There's no bad software development process. There's only how you're doing it today and better. And my goal is to get as many people on the journey to improving how they do it so their lives can be better on an ongoing basis. And that's the motivation. Now, we've got to be a little bit different. A lot of what Goldrat focuses is on constraints and really manufacturing one thing over and over again, and it's easy to measure, right? I, I, I did, you know, 10 widgets a second and 60 widgets a minute, and, 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 that's, and you can change something and see what happens. With software, because it's all different sizes and shapes, we can't measure the value of what's going down the line and that kind of led me to this shift of, I know I can't measure that, but I've gotten pretty darn good at measuring the waste that's slowing things down. So I've, I've kind of shifted and started focusing there because I can measure it, I can quantify it. When I can make a change, I can show the impact of the change. I think that's interesting that that you said, listen, we, you know, I tend now to focus more on on waste, identifying it and removing it. And Toyota obviously breaks it down into these seven very specific categories. You said, you know, data, environments, uh, configuration, maybe deployments. All of those are highly repeatable that I can improve with automation. So identifying waste is like, that's what you typically build your um, KPIs around, your success factor. That, and then it's building quality in and how well am I doing at building quality in? And then understanding cycle time and what's slowing down flow and, you know, and, and it's, 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 
kind of goal rats thing of trying to understand the bottleneck to flow through your organization. And most frequently when I start with organizations, they'll start with it either being their build, their deploy, their test cycle is, you know, they'll have manual capabilities in that. Um, but it's not like manufacturing where, you know, there's one, there's one process in the line that has a cycle time of every 60 seconds I do two widgets and everything else in my factory runs faster than that. So that's my bottleneck. I can focus on that as a constraint and go after it because so the manufacturing process of software doesn't really have it because we can build, deploy, and test 100,000 lines of code and one line of code change for the same cost in the same time. It's just a very unique thing about software that when we're manufacturing it, that's the case. And when we get those things where we're automated, it enables that to really not be the bottleneck and we can still do these large batches. And I think that's what drives a lot of organizations to process in large batches and build up batches to inspect in quality, but it really overlooks the next bottleneck that happens in most organizations, which is the triage defect fixing time. And that's waste. And the way we make that more efficiency is we go to much smaller batch sizes to where we have to evaluate smaller groups of changes. That's enabled by automating our build, our manufacturing process for the software. When we go to smaller batch sizes, that becomes more efficient and we try to get that. And we're doing that by building in quality. And then when you get that good, then you can look at, you know, is your is your bottleneck going to operations? Well, the SRE book taught us that they put control limits on, you know, your service level agreements in production. And you can do whatever you want as a dev team in Google, as long as you meet that service level agreement in production. And as soon as you don't, you need to quit developing features and the whole team's focused on getting that stable and reliable and going back there. So that's another quality control chart. If you don't put some sort of control on production, that can become a bottleneck. But I think Google helped us understand how to keep that from becoming a bottleneck. And then you then it's either in the ideation phase or the developers and you know, if it's in the ideation phase and you got too many developers, most large organizations I've seen will, will end up right sizing or doing something different. So uh, I, I think the best, the goal that you want to do is eventually get it to where your bottlenecks are the developers, because those are the people working with the business to deliver as much value as they possibly can. And if we've got that really as the bottleneck, then we can do what Goldratt says. And how do we focus on making them more productive? You know, at HP, we bought large screens so they could see all the code and be more productive. And we bought noise cancellation headphones because we realized it's it's hard to write code with a lot of noise and distractions. And we did things that we could think of to make them more productive. You know, when they got feedback to debug and triage, we tried to automate the process of giving them the test that they could easily run on their desktop. We tried to scrub all the logs down to what we thought was the key problem. So anything we could think of to make them more productive is what we focused on and it's it's this idea of you know Goldratt's concepts of where's it constraining the system what's slowing down flow is important but it's different because you can't just measure the number of widgets coming down the line and the manufacturing process doesn't naturally have a cycle time on a bottleneck because it just takes all the code that's waiting for a build and bundles it together and runs it through the process at, a, at one time. 
Whereas in manufacturing, you can only do one product at a time or one batch of products at a time. So there is a natural constraint in that process. I find that very interesting. In the Google's books have been enlightening when they talk about, listen, it's it's hard to make complex structures um, reliable. So as soon as a system becomes unreliable, executives and leaders often don't understand the work it takes to get it back to a stable state. So that's why we have SLAs and that's why we apply the brakes when development is running ahead of stability uh, because reliability should be job number one. It's so important. So that whole SRE movement is really fascinating. I thrilled that Google let them publish that book and share yeah. something about what they did. I, I, as I look around and I read a lot as I research, write my books and research to try to figure out how to help my customers. I think that's one of the best things out there to, at this time. They just they they did an excellent job and provided a great perspective. And if you're in this area and you haven't read it, it should be at the top of your stack, right ahead of engineering the digital transformation. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fascinating book, and it's almost a no-brainer. Um, having a few people whose entire role is around stability. Um, that's a that's a power and they kind of brokers that relationship between your stakeholders and the development community so that um, you know everyone's you can get agreement around a specific number around reliability I think that's great so um, any closing thoughts I guess for us with the, with the podcast um, you've broken down your process in, in a lot of detail and I really love that and I also like how the goal is to get where the your developers are the bottleneck for most of us it's usually later in the pipeline that that frustration kicks in. So I, I think that's a great mission. You know, one of the things that I'm working on now is I'm trying to turn the book into a certification so that everybody has a common language and a common understanding of a systematic approach for driving continuous improvement across the organization. And one of the things that I've always not liked very well about software certifications is, is they're all about be able to repeat back to me what I told you so that you understood the concepts and the approaches, whether it's ITIL or any of those different things. And and to me, that's, you know, let me let me repeat back what you said is is of some value. What I'm trying to do is put that in a computer-based program to where everybody in the organization can, you know, have that common language. I can make it cheap and as available to as many people as possible. Quick and easy organizations can track it. In my mind, that's that that common language, that common understanding is necessary but not sufficient. What I'm really trying to do is motivate as many people to apply these principles and, and improve the efficiencies of their organizations. Manufacturing did that with green belts and black belts and Lean Six Sigma. So Lean Six Sigma White belt, I understand the concepts, great, necessary, but not sufficient. Greenbelt says I've taken those principles, I've applied them to my business, and I've delivered a cost savings and an efficiency improvement to my organization. It's not that I understand the concepts, I understand how to apply the concepts and deliver business results. And my goal is to motivate as many people out in the industry to take that next step and really go off and start applying these concepts and delivering results. And and to me, that's kind of what we've been missing in the software certification is getting people motivated to make their organizations more efficient, more effective. And that's something that manufacturing did with Lane Six Sigma. And 
because software is a little different, what I tried to provide is a systematic approach that we can use for software and then trying to make it as efficient and easy and cost effective for as many people that the common language and approaches with the white belt and then motivate as many people as we can to really strive to those hybrid level of achievements where they've proven that they can apply the concept and deliver results for the business. I think sometimes we for, we call ourselves software engineers, but we forget how young our industry is. And we kind of reinvent ourselves every 10 years. So civil engineers would never think about skipping on on quality and everything's very formally, you know, kind of rigid and, and defined. Software isn't like that. Um, and being able to, I think in, in 20 years or so, we're going to look back and, and we're going to see a lot more rigor, like a common understanding, uh, much more visibility and, and much more, um, hopefully something where we're getting more towards, like you said, the green belt lean six, um, where uh, being able to identify and eliminate waste is um, much easier, I guess, and uh, maybe even a little more formalized. And it took manufacturing, you know, you, you look at, you know, Tiacha Ono gets a lot of credit for that and Goldrag gets a lot of credit and dimming, but there were lots of people that fine-tuned that, modified it, approach, and it's a lot of great ideas. And I'm not pretending to have all the right answers for that systematic approach. But what I am hoping to do is say, you know, we need a systematic approach. Here's my initial thinking on how it needs to be different for software and get as many people out there applying it, refining it, improving it, and modifying it. So in 20 years, it's just given that this is a systematic approach that you use for software, and here's how it helps. That's terrific. All right. So, um, Gary, thanks so much for your time today. We love your books. It's just terrific. And we're going to have some links um, on my website uh, and, and in the podcast um, notes as well, so you can get to his his website, there's excerpts available. And his latest book on digital transformation looks to be, I'm excited. I have not read it yet. And I'm looking forward to it. So anyway, Gary, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I can't wait to hear what you think of the book. All right. Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. And we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.